With me to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We are concluding Romans 9 this morning. So, Romans 9, verses 30 to 33. And before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing. Well, Lord, as we just sang, we, we do pray that your truth would be planted deep in us, that our faith and that your truth would prevail over unbelief. I pray, O oh Lord, that the words of this text this morning would be planted deep in our hearts to produce fruit of lasting change and transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. And so we offer ourselves to you, O Lord, and pray that you would do your work in us and speak to us as you would have us be spoken to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 9. Verses 30 to 33. Just to set the stage a little bit, uh, so we've, uh, in, uh, already in Romans 9, uh, the focus has been throughout this chapter on uh, the sovereignty of God over salvation, that, so that we are saved by God's sovereign choice. Paul has hammered the point home uh, throughout these uh, these. Uh, uh, preceding verses in Romans 9 leading up to our text this morning, that it is by God's sovereign choice that many of the Jews have been passed over, and it's by God's sovereign choice that the Gentiles have been drawn into his saving embrace. And now, as we enter into this uh, concluding section and then uh, on into uh, chapter 10 next week and the weeks to come, uh, Paul kind of presents the other side of salvation, that there is an element of human responsibility in salvation as well, that there is human responsibility, there is response to God's gifts of grace, there is response to God's call, there is human culpability in whether we are, uh, whether we believe or, or remain in unbelief. And so that's the focus of Paul's words in our text this morning. So Paul says, starting at verse 30, What then shall we say? And this is what we shall say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. And why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You may be seated. When I was in, uh, in high school, I, I went on a canoe trip, and we uh, 
came to a, a stretch in the river with some rapids, and the canoes were getting tossed and, and turned as they, as they rushed through these rapids. And then, and then about halfway through this stretch of the rapids, there was this giant boulder in the middle of the river, in the middle of the rapids. And, and I watched as the canoes in front of me, there was a number of, of canoes on this trip, and, and, and I watched as the canoes in front of me used that rock to sort of right the, the canoes and to right themselves and, the, and to keep on floating down the river. And I thought, well, that looks pretty easy. And so my canoe mate and I decided that we would do the same thing. And instead of However, you know, coming nicely alongside the rock and using it to, to right ourselves, we came to the rock sideways. And you can imagine what happened. Instead of righting ourselves, we capsized, and we ended up with bloody knuckles and banged-up knees, and we lost a whole bunch of our food and our gear, and my canoe mate uh, destroyed his camera. And I remember thinking to myself how strange it was that this same rock, could be a source of help to some and a source of disaster to others. And we find that, that same sentiment in our text this morning. Paul describes Jesus as a stone. And for some, he is the source of, of greatest possible help. And for others, he is the source of greatest possible disaster. Paul says in these verses that people are lost or saved based on their response to Jesus, that he is the, the great dividing stone of humanity. So you either stand on him in saving faith or you stumble over him in unbelief. Those are the only two options when it comes to how are we going to respond to Jesus. And, and there, there is no middle ground in our response to him. And, and there is no middle way in our eternal destiny. Either we stand on him and are saved or we stumble over him and are not saved. So as we study this text this morning, I want us to ponder these, these two responses of stumbling and standing on the stone and to see how it applies to our lives today. So we see first that, that some stumble over the stone of Christ. Now in this context of Romans 9, Paul is talking primarily about the unbelief of the Jews. That, that, again, that Romans 9 through 11, that's the, the main focus is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in God's saving purpose and plan. So here he's talking primarily about the unbelief of the Jews. And he says that when it comes to saving righteousness, the Gentiles have obtained it even though they didn't pursue it. And the Jews have failed to attain it even though they did pursue it. This is what Paul says in verses 30 to 31. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Now, that is the sad reality of Israel's unbelief. They have zealously pursued righteousness. I don't think anybody has ever pursued righteousness more zealously than the Jews. But they have pursued this righteousness through their own obedience to the law. And the problem with that is that no one can ever attain the standard of righteousness needed for salvation through their own obedience. No one could ever possibly be obedient enough or holy enough or righteous enough or good enough to meet the requirements of a holy God. 
The only possible way to attain the righteousness needed for salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the point Paul makes in verse 32. He says, why have the Jews not attained their goal of saving righteousness? Well, it is because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And then he adds this key statement. They stumbled on a stumbling stone. There is only one way to be saved, and that is to receive in true faith the perfect righteousness of Christ, knowing that we could never possibly procure saving righteousness. On our own. You see, we need, we need to understand that, as the prophet Isaiah said, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We need to know that, as Paul said back in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You can't get any clearer than that. No one can possibly ever be declared righteous in God's sight through their own obedience to the law. Our best acts of obedience will always fall short. I've used this, this little imagery many times before, but, but it's like trying to jump to the moon. No matter how hard you train, no matter how determined you are, no matter you could spend all of your life trying to, to jump higher and higher and higher, you will never jump to the moon. You will always come short of reaching that goal. And so too with our righteousness, we will never come close to reaching the standard of righteousness needed for salvation. What is needed, as Paul has said, is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. What is needed is to receive in faith the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that is precisely what so many of the Jews in Paul's day failed to do. As John said in his gospel, he, he, that is Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Or as Peter said when he was speaking to the, to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, and he quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, and he said to them, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the, the cornerstone. Now, now, the imagery here, I think, is fascinating. The imagery that Paul has in mind is that of a bunch of builders sifting through stones as they build their building. And they come to a stone that looks different than all the rest. And it doesn't meet their expectations. And it's not, it's not what they're looking for. And so they toss it aside. But what they don't realize is that that stone that they've rejected and discarded on the scrap heap was the most important stone of all. The stone that was to be the very foundation and cornerstone of the whole building. And Peter is saying that that's what the Jews have done with Jesus. They did, he didn't. You know, he came to them as this stone that didn't meet their expectations. He, he didn't look what they thought that the Messiah would look like. And so he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for or expecting. And so they rejected him. And at the heart of their rejection of Jesus is their own self-righteousness. They were consumed, so consumed by their own pursuit of righteousness that they were blinded to the righteousness of Christ. And this is what Paul means when he says that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They were on this zealous pursuit of, of righteousness through their own obedience, chasing a salvation by works that could never be attained, 
And along comes Jesus, like a stone in the middle of their path as they made their headlong pursuit. And and all they had to do was to stop and, and to look at him and to see him for who he really is to stop all of their their self-driven striving and to stand on the rock of his righteousness. But instead, they rejected him. In their zealous pursuit of a righteousness by works, they stumbled over the stone of Christ. And so those who who stumble over the stone in, in Paul's mind, in Paul's view, are those who pursue a saving righteousness by their own works. That's what it means to stumble. They don't come to Christ in true faith. They don't see how far short they fall of God's glory. They they don't come before Christ like the tax collector saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've got nothing within myself that, that that can produce a saving righteousness, so I need yours instead. God has placed the stone of salvation in the middle of their path, and they stumble over him as they rush headlong toward a self driven salvation. Now, to drive that point home, Paul brings together two quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So these are two different quotes that Paul brings together. In fact, he sort of splits the one apart and shoves the other one in the middle, and I'll show you that in a minute. But so part of Paul's quote comes from Isaiah chapter 8 where God speaks words of judgment against the people of Israel. And in that passage, in those words of judgment, God refers to himself as the rock that makes them fall. So this is, this is the quote, or this is the passage from Romans 8, where God is speaking in judgment against Israel and Judah. God says, The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. They were dreading the wrong things. They were dreading judgment from Assyria. They were dreading things around them, but they had lost their reverence to God. God says, he will be a holy place. That is, I myself, the Lord Almighty, will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. So Paul now takes that and he applies that to Jesus. And then the other part of Paul's quote comes from Isaiah 28, where God is again speaking words of judgment against the leaders of Israel, and this time against the, not against all of Judah and Israel, but against the leaders of Judah and Israel. They have become self-reliant and complacent. They have lost sight of their dependence on God, and God refers again to himself as a stone, this time the stone in Zion. And only if they stand on him will they not be shaken. So God says in Isaiah 28, verse 16, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. So now in Romans 9, Paul brings together these two quotes and he applies them to Jesus. So here it is. Like I said, I've tried to show it with different colors. So the part in yellow is from Isaiah 28, and the part in red is from Isaiah 8. So Paul cut part Isaiah 28, and he puts Isaiah 8 in the middle. But the point is that Paul sees both of these passages as finding their fulfillment in Jesus. 
that Jesus is the stone laid in Zion from Isaiah 28. And Jesus is the rock that causes people to stumble and fall from Isaiah 8. He is the only source and means of saving righteousness. And those who reject him in unbelief and self-righteousness will stumble over him to their own destruction. So that's those who stumble over the stone. But for all those who do that, for all those who stumble over the stone of Christ, there are some who stand. They receive Christ in true faith, and and through their union with Christ, the, the, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to them, and they are saved. This is the gift that has come to the Gentiles, as Paul says in verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. How? It is a righteousness that is by faith. And this is really an echo of what Paul said back in Romans 3, when he said, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Again, that's what the Jews have been trying to do, to attain this this righteousness through their own obedience to the law. But then in the very next breath, Paul went on to say how someone will be declared righteous in God's sight. And he said this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That is the only way to to receive the, the righteousness needed for salvation is to receive it as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the stone of salvation. You either stand on him in faith or you stumble over him in unbelief. And again, as Paul says in his quote of Isaiah I lay lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, but here's the other side of the equation. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, we came across that expression, put to shame, back in Romans 5, where Paul said that our hope in Christ does not put us to shame. And, And the expression refers to the the humiliation or the disgrace that you would feel if your publicly expressed expectation is not realized. So let me give you an example. So suppose, for example, that a meteorologist uh, says to the TV audience that this week, this coming week, is going to be sunny and dry all week. And as the week unfolds, it turns out that it's rather quite cloudy with a good amount of rain. Well, that meteorologist would be put to shame because his or her publicly expressed expectation was not realized, which, of course, never happens. They're always right. Or suppose, to think of it a little differently, suppose that you're in college and you you really, really like this girl, and and one night you're hanging out with a large group of your friends and you're feeling a little bit bold and a little bit, you know, a little bit sort of snarky, and you make this comment, I'm going to marry that girl someday. And a few months later, he's engaged to somebody else. You will have been put to shame because your publicly expressed expectation, your your publicly expressed confidence was not realized. Paul is saying that if we come to faith in Christ, if we place our hope and expectation in him as our only saving righteousness, that we will not be put to shame that our expectation and our confidence will not prove to have been a false expectation and a false confidence in the end. 
It will be carried to completion. It will be realized. Those who put their hope in the saving righteousness of Christ will be saved. So what Paul is getting at in these verses is that there is a standard of righteousness that must be attained if we're going to stand in the presence of a holy God. And there's really only two choices if we're going to strive for that standard of righteousness. We can try to attain this righteousness on our own and and fall and fail. Or we can actually attain it through faith in Jesus Christ. We can try to earn it or we can receive it as a gift of grace. We, We can stumble over the stone or we can stand on the stone. Those are the only two possibilities on the path of salvation. In the, uh, the late 19th century, the English evangelist Henry Morehouse was uh, walking along a street in London when he came, up, he came upon a, a little girl that was coming out of a store carrying a pitcher of milk. And as this girl approached him and came just a, a few steps away, she, she slipped and she fell. And, and a pitcher of milk slipped out of her hands and it fell on the sidewalk and it broke into pieces and all the milk spilled and went running down the gutter. And the girl began to cry. And Morehouse went up to the little girl and he knelt down beside her to, to comfort her. And, and, and he said to her, he said, look, that, that, that's not broken in that many pieces. Maybe, maybe we can fix it. And, and he began to pick up the pieces and he started to put the pieces back together. And, and the girl stopped her crying. And she began to, to have this hope that maybe this broken picture could in fact be restored. But of course, it, it was no use. You can imagine trying to put piece together a, a, a picture without any glue or anything like that. And so he put the pieces back together, but it was a very tentative kind of ordeal. And with just a little bump, they all came crumbling apart again. And the girl was now sobbing more desperately than ever. And so Morehouse picked up the little girl. And he carried her down the street to a crockery shop where he bought her a brand new pitcher. And then he carried her down to the store where she had just come out of where she had bought the milk and he had them uh, fill that new pitcher with, with a whole new batch of milk. And then he carried her to her home and he set her down on her porch and then asked her, asked her if everything was going to be all right. And she looked up at him with a beaming smile and said, well, yes, sir, this pitcher is even better than the one we had before. Any attempt to attain a saving righteousness by works is like trying to put a broken pitcher back together. It is a futile effort. We we don't have what it takes to, to mend what sin has broken. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has done for us what, what Morehouse did for that little girl. He, he gives us a new picture filled with a perfect righteousness of Christ and he places it in our empty hands. And those who receive the gift in true faith find themselves standing on the stone of salvation and as Paul says, they will never be put to shame. All that is needed is to receive, is to, is to humble ourselves before God and to receive the gift. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. 
Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So as we ponder these, how these words of Paul apply to our lives, I think they, they leave us with two questions. And the first question is this, are you standing or stumbling? Have you received the righteousness of God as a gift through faith in Christ, or are you pursuing it as if it were by works, as Paul says? And you see, even as professing Christians, there is something within us that is so prone to works righteousness. Our natural bent toward pride and and self-reliance does not die easily, does it? We are easily offended by a scheme of salvation that, that brings us to nothingness. By this scheme of salvation that says the, you know, the only way to receive it is to admit that, that you have nothing to offer. And we're offended by that because we want to have something to offer. We would rather contribute something to our salvation than to admit that we have nothing to bring. And, and not everyone who thinks that they are standing on the rock of Christ are truly standing. Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Did we not do these things in the name of Jesus Christ with a a solid profession that we had faith in in, in, in you and in your name? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Are you standing or stumbling? Have you received Christ in in true faith? Or is the faith that you profess just a veil over your heart of unbelief? Are you following the the real Christ and, and all of his radical claims and all of his radical teachings? Or are you following a domesticated Christ? A Christ that is tamed and, and pared down. A Christ reshaped according to your own image. A Christ that fits better with your, own, with your own personal convictions and cultural expectations. Many people stumble over the stone because it undermines their self-righteousness. And to admit their nothingness is, is, is an intolerable offense to their pride. And, and it's easier, this is, this is why this is a, a dangerous teaching. It, it, it's easier to follow rules than it is to follow Jesus. In our natural bent, it's easier to, to just, just give me some rules, something that I can do, instead of abandoning yourself and saying, I have nothing that I can do, nothing that I can offer, and abandoning yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. It's a lot riskier to do that than to have a list of rules to follow. It's easier to follow rules in the person of Jesus, and it's more enticing. It's more enticing to be a self-exalting champion of morality like the Pharisees were than it is to be a self-emptying and self-crucifying disciple of Christ. It is more enticing to be a self-exalting champion of morality there were, there, were, there were no 
greater champions of morality than the Pharisees. And that's more enticing to be that than it is to be a self-emptying and self-crucifying disciple of Christ. Are you standing or stumbling? Do you, in your heart of hearts, find yourself with the Pharisees or with the true disciples? It is disturbing to me how many professing Christians speak in language of works righteousness. If you ask professing Christians, how, that, how, how do you know that you're right with God? How, do you, how can you be assured that you are going to heaven? If you ask professing Christians those kinds of questions, so often, so many of them will respond with answers of what they have done. Instead of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And they'll, they'll say things like, well, I, I know because I go to church. I know because I read my Bible. I pray. I try to do what is right. I've led people to Christ. I've had a fruitful evangelistic ministry. I've taught Sunday school for 20 years. I've been, a, I've been an elder. I've been a deacon. I've been a pastor. Those things mean nothing. If that is your go-to response, then I fear that you are stumbling over the stone of Christ instead of standing. The only right answer to the question of how you can know you are right with God is to say, in the spirit of the tax collector, I know that I am a hell-deserving sinner in need of God's gracious gift of salvation, and I've received it through faith in Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's the only, that's the only right answer. So where do you find yourself this morning? Are you standing or stumbling? The second question is, are you growing or regressing? It may seem like an odd question in light of this whole stone imagery, but it's not in light of what, what Peter says, which we'll get to in a minute. If we are standing on the stone of Christ, we are not meant to stay standing still, dormant. It is God's intent that we be growing. This is what Peter says, and I'm not showing it on the screen. Uh, later on, he will quote the same parts of Isaiah that, that Paul does, but this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, there is again that allusion to Psalm 118. As you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul says the, almost the exact same thing, the same idea in Ephesians 2, which I read earlier this morning. See, the picture that Peter is painting is that if we have come to Christ in true faith, if, if we embrace him and stand on him as the stone of salvation, then we are part of this, this fellowship of believers that is built on Christ as the chief cornerstone. We are each like living stones that are part of a spiritual house built on the foundation of Christ. And the purpose of this house is to honor and guard the holiness of God. 
and to declare the praises of God, as Paul will go on to say just a few verses later in 1 Peter 2, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light, to declare the praises of God, to bear the witness, to bear witness to the glory of his grace. That is what, that is what this house is for. And what this means then for each of us as living stones is that we are part of an ongoing building project. We are to be continually growing in, in holiness and Christ-likeness. We are meant to be using our gifts faithfully and diligently in building up the body of Christ. That's what it, that's what it is to be part of this spiritual house that, that, that guards and declares and proclaims and, 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 and uh, strives for the holiness of God and declares the praises of him who made us what we are using our gifts faithfully and diligently in building up the body of Christ. And so when opportunities come to serve, are you quick to say yes? Or is it your impulse to say no? Because if you're honest with yourself, your, your priorities are elsewhere. As I consider the life of Covenant Church over the last couple of years, few years, one of my concerns is that too many people are too quick to say no. When opportunities present themselves to serve, to use your gifts, to build up the body of Christ, I think too many people are saying no. And one of my prayers is that more and more people would be quick to say yes. That we might cultivate among us a greater passion, not, not just a, a willingness, but a, but a passion to use our gifts and, and, and to build up the house of God. I mean, is there really anything greater than that, than, than to be part of this, a living stone that is using the gifts that God has given to build up the body, to declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his light? Is there anything more wonderful than that? So are you growing or regressing? Are you contributing to the growth of the house of God, or are you stalling its progress? To think of it another way, consider the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see progress in the fruit of the Spirit forming within you? Do you see positive change in the fruits of love and joy and patience and, and kindness? If you are standing on the rock of Christ, then you are meant to be growing in Christ-likeness. And if you're not growing, you have to ask yourself if you are truly standing. In the end, these, these words of Paul beckon us to step away from ourselves, to surrender our pride, to abandon ourselves to Christ as the stone of salvation. One of the great preachers from the mid-1900s was Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the uh, preacher at 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was his successor. And uh, Barnhouse said this, and I'll, I'll conclude with this quote, uh, said this of, of those who stand on the rock of Christ. And he was contrasting those who, who stumble over it as those who have their eyes lifted up and, and their, their eyes are focused on their own efforts and their own stuff. And so they don't even see, they, they don't see the stone of Christ on the path and they stumble over it. But in contrast to that, this is what Barnhouse says of those who do stand on the rock. 
He says, they have come through the tangled grass of this world with their eyes not high on their own efforts, but low upon their own bleeding feet, scarred with their walk on the road of sin. In other words, knowing that they are sinners. When they have come to this stone, they have been willing to stand on it. They have abandoned their goal, their road, their strength, their pride, and have taken their stand squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. And to them, Barnhouse says, comes the trumpeted promise from the God of the universe, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. May it be so of us. May we abandon our pride and stand with bloody feet on the rock of Christ, the only hope and only stone of salvation. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit to search our hearts as we ponder these two questions. Am I standing or stumbling? And am I regressing or growing? Oh Lord, search us and speak to us Show us the ways that we need to change and lead us to repentance and trust. Lord, hear our silent prayers as we come before your throne. Lord God, we confess that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, O Lord, may we then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Oh, Lord, may it be so of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.